You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So this is our first episode of Labor Relations Radio in 2024. And you'll note that we're about 10 days into the new year. I wanted to make sure that everybody was back to work before having any more episodes published. In any case, the purpose of this episode is a few months ago, I was presenting at a conference of a lot of HR folks, and I mentioned the outright Marxists that are out in the open now with unions and the union organizing activity that's been occurring at a lot of these, quote, progressive companies has been backed by organizations like the Communist Party USA, the Democratic Socialists of America and others. And I mentioned this not in a political sense, but from the standpoint of having been around for a long time, watching the union movement as it's changed or become more, quote, progressive, and a lot of employers today not knowing about it or thinking that we're still back in 2019. So joining me today is Michael Watson, and Michael is the research director for the Capital Research Center and serves as the managing editor for Influence Watch. And I've followed Michael for many years, and he does a lot of writing and a lot of educational writing in terms of the union movement and some of the things that they're doing. So without further ado, here is Michael Watson. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Michael Watson, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. It's great to meet you in person somewhat after following you for a long time. Uh, thank, thanks, Peter. It's nice to, nice to see your face. <laughs> so let's get a little background as to who you are and the Capital Research Center, um, because you, you folks publish quite a bit of information out there, but I don't know that a lot of people know about you. Yeah, so... At Capital Research Center, we, uh, I think our current tagline is we uh, investigate the left deeply and expose it widely. Um, So we look into all the, we call them influencers, the groups that uh, work behind the scenes in public policy and politics and and political economy. So foundations, we write a lot on foundation funding, uh, environmentalist groups, write a lot of environmentalist groups, um, groups like Arabella Advisors that sort of interweave the advocacy and the funding, uh, and then obviously labor unions because they're a crucial part of the uh, of the uh, liberal institutional architecture. And you folks have also uh, Influence Watch. Yes, yes, we are the. Uh, publishing institution of Influence Watch, influencewatch.org, uh, where we just deposit lots of this information. Yeah, and for the listeners who have not visited that website, it is a terrific website that is very deep with research, links, etc. Thank you. <laughs> so the reason I wanted to talk to you is you published something recently about some historical 
records, if you will, about Marxism and unions. And as I mentioned before, I hit the record button. I was doing a presentation a few months ago to a fairly large HR group about the current union activity involving the Democratic Socialists of America and the Communist Party USA, both of which have been instrumental in unionizing Starbucks as well as Amazon in Staten Island. And I tried to be non-political about it, but there's a history to this that a lot of people today don't understand. And I thought we could kind of talk about that. Yeah, and I think it's important. I, I see the history of organized labor's relation to communism with the capital C in sort of three three historical periods. There was the pre-Cold War period or pre-World War II period where you had a lot of, let's be charitable and call it fellow traveling. You had, you know, a faction of the organized labor movement of the labor movement that came out of socialism. You had in some cases, in the old Congress of Industrial Organizations, straightforward members of the Communist Party USA in senior roles, organizing the uh, that labor federation's political activities. And then the Cold War starts, and all of a sudden, the labor unionists that survived sort of the Red Scare era, they may be social democrats in their political economy, they may be uh, you know New Deal liberals, but a lot of them were virulently anti-communist. George Meany, virulently anti-communist. Lane Kirkland, virulently anti-communist. But then the Soviet Union collapses in the 90s, in the early in the early 90s, and you have the rise of the sort of contemporary socialism in the labor movement. You mentioned the DSA, obviously John Sweeney, who replaces Lane Kirkland as at the head of the AFL-CIO in, in the mid-1990s, sort of is a hard break. He was reported at the time to be a DSA member, uh, and he sort of shows the rise of this new left uh, that replaced the Truman LBJ, you know, yes, very liberal in their domestic political economy, but still uh, very anti-communist in their foreign policy uh, faction that ran, that, that was the face of American organized labor for about 40 years. So let's go back a little bit pre-CIO phase where you had back in the day the AFL, American Federation of Labor, who was run for 24 years with exception one year in between by Samuel Gompers, right? Mm -hmm. And he was adamantly anti-socialist. So this goes back well over a century. Yeah, anti-socialist. He had a, a very long speech that he gave, I believe, at the convention about how socialists are against the working people, etc. He dies 1920-something, 26, 28. I want to say 20. I want to say 24. Okay. And so that kind of opened the door for this split, if you will, over the next decade between the AFL, which was trade union oriented, mm -hmm. and the CIO, which was mass unionization across industries. In between all this, we also had the IWW, right? The Wobblies. Yeah, when, 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 so bef uh, before World War One, from about 1900 to World War One, 1917, you had the Socialist Party USA of Eugene Debs and the IWW of Big Bill Haywood. And they, like, especially the IWW, obviously the Socialist Party USA is a socialist political party. 
um, but it comes from a labor organizing background. The IWW is if if is a radic self-consciously radical labor union. Uh, and it sort of has this boomlet in prominence right before World War One, right before the U.S. gets into World War One, organizing uh, organizing workers that the AFL under Gompers thought couldn't be organized because they didn't have enough. They weren't essentially they weren't skilled enough. Uh, the the trades union mentality of the old AFL was, you know, we you know, I mean, think of Gompers. He was a cigar maker. He rolled cigars. Right. You know that that was a you know, I have this distinct skill. I can roll, you know, I can roll cigars. We all, the cigar makers, we roll cigars. Uh, if you told us, you know, if you took our jobs away and tried to roll and tried to keep making cigars, you would suffer because we have skills that you don't, that you, the capitalists, don't. Uh, so you should pay us more, or, you know, give us more reasonable hours, you know, all the sort of standard demands of early trade unionism. Um, but, you know, Haywood was organizing miners out in, Oh, Idaho, um, Montana, Montana. Yes. Uh, Montana, Wyoming. Uh, and that was seen as quote unquote unskilled labor and that kind of anybody could do. So there wasn't any, uh, you know, the individual, the individual workers, even as a collective didn't have that ability to withhold their labor, uh, and cause injury to the capitalists, to the, the capital owners. And, in that big surge of economic activity before the U.S. gets into World War One, Haywood has a, and the IWW have a lot of success organizing these quote-unquote unskilled workers. As you know, the U.S. is basically serving as the arms dealer to the to the allies in Europe. Uh, but before we get into World War One, and then once and then once we get into World War One, uh, then. All of this runs headlong into the Wilson administration's absolute disrespect for civil liberties. <laughs> right. And so we enter the mid-20s, then going into the 30s, you've got the depression that sets mm-hmm. in. Yeah, so, and... so Haywood and Debs are kind of taken out of the picture by by Wilson and his absolute disrespect for civil liberties. Uh, mm-hmm. Debs, Debs gets sent to jail for violating the Espionage Act for being against World War I. Uh, obviously, he gets bailed uh, after Harding takes office, but he's he's old and sick, and he's done. He's done. Uh, Haywood is convicted, and then while uh, awaiting se- either while awaiting sentencing or between sentencing and when he would have to go to jail, he flees to Russia. He flees to Soviet Russia, and he will die there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they're they're out of the picture, and kind of the IWW as a mass institution kind of collapses, uh, and the Socialist Party never re- reaches the same heights that it had when Debs was was running it. And let me let me say something, and you correct me if I'm wrong. But I've always viewed the socialists want the unions because they are the key and the jackboots, if you will, to getting the socialist utopia enacted. Is that an accurate statement? Close, close. The organized worker in, in unionism, you'd say something like the organized workers will take the means of production and operate them for the common good rather than the good of the capital. I mean, I mean, that's kind of the the sentiment of of uh, of socialist trades unionism that 
there, you know, we the workers could have more, <laughs> scompers is word, just more, you know, more money, better hours, more time off. If only the, we didn't have to produce profit for the capitalist. And so if we organize, if we get all together and we take the mean and we control the means of production, you know, we will get all those good things for ourselves. Now, of course, the record of actual state-run businesses is not that, but that's a that's an as-applied problem. Right. Well, and that sort of mentality you see on social media today with the left-leaning unionists. And frankly, we're seeing it from the UAW. Oh, outright. It's outright socialism. No, it it is outright socialism. So this kind of gets me to a broader point. So we had this rise of socialism. Cold War kind of goes away. Mid-90s, Sweeney takes over from the the Lane Kirkland era of the AFL-CIO. I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. But then Trumpka... And one of the one of the things and Trumpka, and Trumpka was, I think he comes in as Sweeney's number two, right? Is, so this, this is a think of it as like, you know, Reagan Bush. You know, this is a president and a vice and a. I think the AFL term is secretary treasurer, but consider it president and vice president. Well, they had a, a triumvirate for a little while with Linda Chavez Thompson, but I, she kind of fell off the map. Mm-hmm. But one of the first things that Sweeney, Trumpka, and Thompson did was to remove the ban on communists in the AFL-CIO. And so in the old days, and I'm saying this old days 15 years ago, you know, I would call out some of these things when I was writing on different publications, but writing and, you know, oh, I'm red baiting, things like that. Mm-hmm. But now it's out in the open. Yeah, it is. It is. It is pretty, pretty out in the open. And it's not just in, you know, there, there's sometimes this uh, mistaken belief that, you know, big labor, yeah, they're bad and political, but little labor is, is, is not. You know, the individual, these individual organizations are not. And actually, that's sometimes not true. And in fact, sometimes it's backwards because at least the, you know, the um, constraints of national politics sort of do provide at least a boundary on how far left the national labor unions are kind of able to portray themselves. Although they are pushing, you know, you mentioned Sean Fain, they are sort of pushing how far they can go. But a group like, say, the Amazon Labor Union, which isn't affiliated with any of the national unions, at least last I checked, uh, you know, they can get pretty openly radical. Uh, They were even, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of talk now in the labor union movement against Israel uh, after right. the response to October 7th. Well, uh, Amazon labor union didn't even wait until the war started to be against Israel. Yeah, I they think it was October 8th. They were marching right? with Linda Sarser before the the war broke out. Yeah. Yeah, literally the next day. The, uh, the oh, same with yeah, the, yeah, DSA. The, the, the DSA march. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the thing with the the Amazon labor union, and this came out after they won the Staten Island warehouse that, you know, they had the phone banking going on from the Communist Party headquarters. The number two or three person, one of the union salts, is this young lady by the name of Justine Medina, 
in New York, who's the co-chair of the Young Communist League. Yeah, that, that, that's very, that's, I think that sounds familiar to me, yeah. Yeah, very open about it. And then, you know, I've, I've used a uh, audio clip for a while now, a couple of years. There's this DSA Zoom call, uh, public call, that, you know, they openly mm-hmm. talked about, hey, we've got to get behind the unions. We've got to help them organize because we need to enact the PRO Act because that helps us with the Green New Deal. And so it's it's a whole blending of, of issues. Oh, yeah, no. And, and that's actually, again, an interesting point you bring up the Green New Deal. The, you know, because there's this belief, I think, in some quarters of the sort of nationalist populist right that there's an inherent tension between the environmental wing of the left and the labor sort of industrial labor, not industrial in terms of industrial union, but like guys who build stuff unions. Um, and that the further the environmental environmentalists go left, it's going to cause a fissure. They're going to split. And that isn't how institutionally organized labor is built. That isn't how, uh, you know, environmentalists work very, very hard to, for lack of a better word, buy off uh, organized labor when they're designing programs like the Green New Deal. You know, I don't know if it was the Green New Deal people who said, you know, that like these are going to, you know, all the jobs we're going to create, you know, making solar panels or whatever, you know, they're all going to be union jobs. That's well, to and to that, on side. to that end, you know, you had Biden just signed the project labor agreement on all federal products over 35 million right before the holidays. Right. Mm-hmm. So they are trying to like link the two together. Traditionally, right. and, the, the, and especially when you have project labor agreement stuff and it's government money, I mean, where you have a government like the Biden administration that is either beholden to or utterly sympathetic with organized labor and environmentalists, I mean, they can always take taxpayer money and and use it to, uh, and you know, pass it around and make sure that everybody gets their share. Right, which they're doing. Yeah, exactly. So is it just me or have you seen as well the kind of coming out of the closet, so to speak, total pun on that, um, but the coming out of the closet of the Marxists into everyday unionism. It's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, how much of it, I think some of it is compared to sort of the Lane Kirkland era is structural. Who is a labor union member is different than it was 25 to say nothing of 45 years ago. You know, Lane Kirkland, I was writing this up couple days ago, Lane Kirkland takes office in 79, mm-hmm. uh, sort of high, you know, when, um, when he, when he takes over the AFL and the proportion of union members who were government workers versus private sector workers, there were way more private sector workers than government workers who were union, in the AFL or right. in unionism. Today, it's about even. And that's using a definition of private sector worker that, you know, might include workers in, you mentioned project labor agreements, well, they technically work for contractors who are technically in the private sector. Hospitals in some states where basically all the money coming in is government, but it's officially run by an independent nonprofit. 
you know, so a lot of the the people who are in labor unions, labor union members, uh, are now beholden to big government in a way that they weren't 45 years ago. Uh, you know, if you're working at, I mean, if you're working at a car factory, the size of government doesn't have that much bearing on whether you're going to have a job. If you're a public school teacher, if you are working for a hospital that gets a substantial proportion of its revenue from government health spending, if you are working for a government uh, a contractor on government projects, again, you're directly reliant on big government, and sometimes that is going to look a lot like socialism for your paycheck. And that change and that change in who organized labor is made of, I think, has something to do with the rise not so much of Marxism, but definitely of, of state economic planning of socialism in the labor movement. Yeah, it it might behoove us to kind of talk about specific unions. The largest union in the United States is a government union of NEA. teachers, NEA, National Education Association. I think the number two is the SEIU, right, which is... Would either, it's, I think it's the SEIU. Yeah, I think it's the SEIU. It, the SEIU is at least one of the biggest, if 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 not number two. Which essentially controls California and several other states through representing state workers. It's got it's got a lot of state worker units. It's yeah. also got a lot of private sector units, but it's also got but its biggest and most important units are probably those public sector units like uh, California state workers. Yeah, right. And then you've got other biggies like AFSME, which is the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees. And they hold a lot of sway, to your point being that it's about half and half, half private sector, half government sector. Right. And, you know, we haven't even mentioned, you know, in in recent years, people have become very familiar with the American Federation of Teachers led by Randy Weingarten. Right. Uh, You know, we've got there there are so many government worker unionists that we have two major government, uh, two major teachers unions before we even bring in other government workers. Right. And if you've been following along, whether you're pro- lockdowns or not pro lockdowns if you've been following along with some of the dialogue you know randy weingarten was in the news is still in the news quite a bit over her mm, promoting if you will the lockdowns during the pandemic it it, it, it was it was demonstrated by academic research that the more powerful your teachers unions were the more restrictions were on your kids going to school right yeah which gets into a whole public policy debate on that yeah. All right. So you're seeing it similarly to what I'm seeing and maybe from a different perspective. I just, I view it as, wow, it is really out in the open now. And, you know, where you've got Bloomberg writing about all the union salts that are at, at Starbucks and Amazon and outing them, so to speak, and then them going out on different websites and, and touting socialism. Twitter obviously is, is all over the place. It's oh, man, times and have and changed. The thing about, and the thing about Twitter and social media is that some of these activists will, you know, e- even if they're trying to lie low in their professional lives, if, if they let their red flags fly on Twitter and Facebook. Right. Well, yeah, that to that point, the SEIU up in Connecticut had to fire one of their vice presidents like the week after October 7th for him going out there and on a pro Hamas or pro Mm-hmm. Palestine rant, who also was openly communist. 
which was kind of interesting. It was, it was one of those things that uh, inflamed the left for that for SEIU firing him. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I guess glad they got rid of him, but you know, it does show you sort of how this everything leftism is all is all running together. So let me ask you what you think the short, mid, and longer term goals are for for the the socialists in the union movement. Yeah. I mean, the short-term goal, obviously, is to obtain sort of power within the labor movement and organize more workers, because when you have more workers organized, you have more uh, more economic power, uh, and you have more political power. The medium term would be to probably move in a political direction uh, to elect your, to elect your friends. Obviously, labor unions, even right now, uh, even back in even back when they weren't socialists, they were political. You know, labor unions spend millions of dollars on um, through their political committees on elections. Uh, they spend even more on lobbying, public policy advocacy, supporting groups like Center for American Progress, National Employment Law Project, uh, Economic Policy Institute that develop what are going to be the policies of the. Of, of the left wing and then become the policies of, of politicians that unions support when they get into office. And then, I mean, in, in the long term, if you, if you ask Sean Fain, what does he want, you know, to take the means of production, you know, to have a state run car company, I would be, would be my guess. Like the, you know, British, British Leland. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I don't think, too many people are seeing this. I mean, they're seeing it, but they're not making much about it. And especially employers out there who are just kind of like trying to run their business, fight off whatever regulations they're they've got coming their way. So far, it's so far down the pike. I think part of so I've been writing on what I call the Taft Hartley consensus, the sort of policy package that comes out of the late 1940s on the right in response to big wave of strikes that happens after World War II. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, everybody's kind of vaguely aware that something called right to work exists. So it comes out of that time, but also regulating uh, union conduct, uh, both in terms of negotiations and in terms of what they can and can't strike for. Uh, And then also subjecting their operations to government scrutiny because they've been given all this power by the government to quote unquote, represent workers who who do not wish to be represented by them. And part of the issue with convincing people that this is important is that it has worked so well over the past 80 years that, you know, unionism isn't something that people think about it unless they're paid to like me, (laughs) Um, you know, you know, the, the union density in the private sector has fallen from something like a third to roughly 6%. Yep. You know, you know, the odds that somebody else's labor dispute is going to cause you a problem or that you're going to be dragooned into a dispute at your workplace, pretty low. And so, you know, and what caused people to sour on unions to begin with? Well, they saw Jimmy Hoffa being corrupt. They saw, you know, Reds in the CIO in the 50s. They saw, um, you know, how 
strongly unionized uh, sectors of the economy in the 70s and 80s fell behind foreign competition and then ultimately went bankrupt. That was 30, 40 years ago. People haven't had to experience the negative consequences with the exception basically of school kids in COVID. Uh, haven't had to experience the negative consequences of unionism in a long time. And I think that breeds some that breeds some rose-colored glasses memory. Well, and if you look at the the Pew research, and I think uh, Center for American Progress did it as well, the most pro-union generation out there is the Gen Z workers who have no institutional knowledge. And, you know, and quite frankly, are behind a lot of the organizing activity that we're seeing across the country I, today. I, mean, I do not think it is a coincidence that, you know, the most prominent socialist member of Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, was born either right before or right after the Berlin Wall fell. I right. don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, I, in some ways, it is that institutional knowledge, that lack of historical knowledge that a lot of the kids are not even examining, which is kind of a wider subject of whether they're <laughs> utilizing critical thinking skills. Let me ask you this. More, more recently, we touched on this a little bit with the October 7th. Are you starting to see, I know the split is out there among the unions, but are you starting to see this as maybe a turning point with certain unions? Like, okay, now people are starting to wake up as to what these unions are standing for? I, that's always hard. To, that's always hard to say. Um, you know, we've seen some of the unions come out for, you know, ceasefire now or whatever. That's not getting the same play as like the univer the, the elite universities that have gotten into, tr gotten into trouble for their statements. Right. You know, it, it hasn't been front, it hasn't been front and center of the sort of national debate. Um, I think it is illustrative of the myth of the non-political labor union that they just can't help themselves from getting involved in a, uh, in a political dispute about a conflict several thousand miles away and then taking a radical left position on it. But whether that's breaking through to the public, I just don't think that they're, I don't think that they're taking these controversial radical left stands is getting the same sort of play that some other institutions that are more publicly prominent have been getting. That's interesting. Well, I, I think it kind of ties in. Uh, you've probably been following what's going on with Harvard and Bill Ackman and that yeah. whole tiffed back and forth. The I think there's some tie into that because a lot of the groups that Ackman's complaining about on the Harvard campus or other campuses are also the ones that are being backed by the unions or actual union locals doing the protesting. And yeah, that wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, as I, I'm just, I saw this as is starting to emerge. I happened to be driving cross country right after October 7th. I was like, I wonder if this is going to be a turning point because I saw the march that DSA did the day after. And I was like, ooh, that's going to be ugly. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, I mean, it's just kind of like the, like the universities and that something can like be a problem and be a, a low level problem. And then all of a sudden the issue becomes ripe and people start paying attention to it and things happen. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think on organized labor that for partly for the reasons that I was saying about the Taft-Hartley consensus, like it's just not a part of people's everyday lives. 
the way that it once was, that I don't think it's quite ripe for, even with the degree of radicalism with the positions that like the UAW is taking, I just don't think it's ripe for a real public backlash yet. If, you know, if we're maybe three, five years down the road and big labor has had the resurgence that they have predicted for 20 of the last 20 years, yeah, right. it actually happens, you know, and there's a big wave, you know, I mean, Sean Fain is talking about a general strike. Okay. You know, if the general strike happens and then six months later, unions come out for some extremely radical thing, then I think you would actually get some some blowback because they would be much more prominent in the national conversation than they are now, even with the uh, with the year, you know, with the Hollywood strikes and then with the UAW strikes that that big laborers had. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And and I'll just say this for the listeners that haven't been following along the UAW with the contracts at the Detroit three automakers set the expiration for April 30th, 2028, so that they could go out on strike on May Day, 2028, as if a strike happens. And it's hard to accuse somebody of red baiting if they're striking on May 1st. <laughs> right. Well, and for the listeners, you've got to go back and study May Day. So <laughs> with regard to that, Sean Fain is also trying to get other unions to set their expiration dates at the same time so that they could have what the left has wanted for decades is a general strike across the United States to shut the economy down, essentially. I have not seen too many unions, if any, that have agreed to May 1st or, or April 30th expiration dates, but, you know, there's still three and a half, four years to go. So we'll yeah, see if yeah, that we'll happens. See, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what else are you working on at at the uh, either Influence Watch or the Capital Research Center? Well, Influence Watch is constantly churning out new and updated profiles on organizations like some of the ones we've been discussing. Uh, also, people um, involved in the public policy arena. Uh, so, influencewatch.org, uh, always new stuff there. Uh, and then at Capital Research, uh, at least for my part, I am continuing to uh, periodically put out you know, a little, little bit of the, of the history of what's, uh, what, how the labor movement got where it is today and, you know, reminding uh, the public why, uh, why they stuck with the Taft-Hartley consensus for, for the past eight decades. Yeah, it's awesome. And it, as I mentioned at the outset, you know, I've been following your writing for a long time. This is the first time we got to chat personally, but it's, okay. uh, you, you, you put much. out some good stuff. Thank you very much. So, Michael Watson, thank you so much for coming on Labor Relations Radio. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Anytime. So that was Michael Watson, Research Director for the Capital Research Center and Managing Editor for Influence Watch. As always, I'm going to leave some links under the audio portion of this episode. And I encourage you to go to the links, check out a lot of his writings, because he does write a lot about some very substantive issues. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week.
black cream and take me to that place and wash my sins away. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.